This sermon series that we're in right now is on the law of God. We started last week, and I kind of gave the disclaimer last week that this is not a typical sermon series. Normally, we are very expository. We take a passage of scripture, or we follow through uh, sequentially through a, a book or books of the Bible, and we go through them. Um, we're starting a series now. It's more textual topical. We're starting with uh, a series on the Ten Commandments and the role that they have for the Christian's life. But last week and this week are kind of like um, more teaching. Uh, think more classroom type of presentation as opposed to three, ser- three points in the sermon, um, alliterated uh, with the forced alliteration that I, ta- I tend to use sometimes, and, um, and then a nice bow on the end. Instead, we'll think of it as like we're going to try to get as far as we can for some very important things that I think are very helpful as we get into the series, as we start to look at Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the other passages in the New Testament that hang on those. Uh, so uh, just as a disclaimer, uh, if uh, it seems a little different than usual, that, that is the reason why. Uh, so last week we were looking at, as we were introducing this series, we were looking at, at the... Um, the law of God, and we saw three things. We saw the, the moral law, which is the eternal law of God, how uh, the, the duty that God requires of man is the moral law, that the moral law is actually um, written on human hearts. We saw that from uh, Romans chapter 2, and so that we call that the natural law. Uh, But then we also talked about positive laws, laws that the Lord commands in addition to those. Today, we're going to kind of continue on through that and again, laying the foundation for what we're going to be exploring as we can, as we really get into the expository parts of this series. And so let me just give you all the points that that, uh, we were wanting to cover today. There is a review of last week, the moral law. It's the will of God for human behavior and conduct. And then the moral law that is written on human hearts is the natural law. And then laws given by God apart from those is positive. So think positive is added to those things. Today we're looking at uh, 10 words, two tablets, three divisions, and three uses. Hopefully you didn't panic there, wondering how long this was going to be today. Uh, Ten words, two tablets, three divisions, and three uses. And I had a fifth one on there, which would be uh, we're, we're going to postpone until, until next Lord's Day. So to give you a survey of where we're going, we hope to cover these four things. I know it sounds like a lot. You're adding up there 10, 3, 16, 18. It's not 18 points. It's just four points today. Uh, but 10 words, two tablets, three distinctions or divisions, and three uses of the law. Okay, so let's begin with the 10 words. And I want to do this by recapping our catechism question from last week. Catechism question from last week was uh, question 46. Uh, Well, let's review 44 through 46. Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? And let's say these together, the answer together. The moral law, uh, oh, excuse me. Sorry, I was reading here. It's a different on the slide. Uh, Question 44, what is the duty which God requireth of man? And we say together, the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Question 45 is, what did God at first reveal to man? 
For the rule of his obedience, let's say together, the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. And now, the one I was trying to get to, question 46, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? I like that phrase. Let's say together. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So that's, we, we saw the moral law last week written on human hearts, but that very same moral law that is written on human hearts was also delivered upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments in the passage that Pepe read for us in Exodus chapter 20 today. And so they are the Ten Words. The Ten Words. The Ten Commandments. And so you know the historical setting for this, that the Lord God, uh, Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons, the, the nation of Israel, were enslaved in bondage uh, in Egypt, and that the Lord heard their cries and their groanings, and he called Moses, and he spoke to Moses, and brought appointed Moses to be a deliverer for the people out of Egypt. And long story short, the, the Lord brings them out with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with mighty works. He brings them out. They cross the Red Sea and he leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the Ten Commandments as part of the covenant that he makes with Israel. And so this is the series that we're going to be looking at, these Ten Commandments. Now, why is it ten? If you read it, how would you number it? How would you know, how do we even know that it is ten? Is it just the you, thou shalt nots? And it's very interesting is that the various uh, Christian uh, denominations and as well Judaism uh, have different ways of numbering it. I won't get into the details here, but the way that the Jews number the Ten Commandments is different than the way that Protestants do, most Protestants do, which is different than even how Lutherans number the Ten and uh, Catholics do. Lutherans and Catholics, I think, number them the same way. How do we know it's ten? Well, the scripture tells us it's ten. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses gives some, uh, a recap for Israel about the giving of those Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And he, the Lord, declared to you, Israel, his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now, notice, if you were to turn in that passage, you could see a little footnote there that would say, as it is here in the bottom, the Hebrew, literally, the Ten Words. The Ten Words. Similarly, of the giving, the second giving of it, um, after Moses had broken the tablets, after the people of Israel had uh, committed the idolatry and the worship of the golden calf, they make a second pair of tablets. And then it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And he wrote on the tablets the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments. And in the Hebrew there, it's the, the Ten Words. So that's how we know it is the Ten and so uh, sometimes the, the Ten Commandments are referred to as the Decalogue. Have you heard the Ten Commandments? Maybe you've read a book or a commentary or something referred to them as the Decalogue. That's just the Greek for ten words. Deca, 
uh, logoi. So these 10 words, these 10 commands, they summarize comprehensively what the moral law is. So we had uh, God's will for man, the moral law summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Now, that's not to say that the moral law begins here. This is just a summary of what uh, Adam knew in his heart. It's a summary of what, uh, what all people in the world would have known and what God had revealed in various ways to his people at various times. Abraham is spoken of in Genesis of teaching his children to follow the commandments of God. So all they're given at, they're presented here in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. They existed before then. And they continue to be useful for us, which we'll get to in a moment. So the ten words, that's the first thing that you need to know about the Ten Commandments, is the ten words on two tablets, which we saw as we were reading here. They're on two tablets, not like typical Christian artwork. Um, so you can see I have... Uh, a replica of an ancient Hebrew script on tablets there. Can you can see that kind of in the background? Maybe it's difficult to see. If you were to Google Ten Commandments artwork, how many of you have seen it? And it's two stone tablets, and then it's Roman numerals, <laughs> one through five and six through ten, you know. A um, little anachronistic there. You know, Romans come much, much later. Um, so uh, it's... But it does tell us that it's written on two tablets or two tablets of stone. But sometimes it's referenced as being on two tables, which doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean to correspond with these. But it's helpful to think of the two tables of the law. And what do I mean by that is that the, um, the two objects of our obligation. The first one is our duty to God, or sometimes it's referred to kind of vertically which would be the first four that Pepe read for us. And the other one is our duty to man, numbers 5 through 10. So these 10 commandments were delivered on two tablets, the first four containing our duty to God, the second four containing our duty to men. Okay? Now, why this is kind of interesting is because of the second passage that was read for us today. In Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is confronted, and, and several of the Gospels record um, variations of this event, but Jesus is asked by the religious authorities of the day, and perhaps there was you know, an ongoing debate among the rabbis, which of the 613, which is according to their count, 613 commandments in the, the law, which is the greatest? And so they come to Jesus, a well-known teacher and preacher and rabbi. Perhaps it is to, to try to trick him up, as they did on occasion. And they ask him, which is the greatest of all of the commandments? And I love Jesus' answer. He says, well, the, the greatest commandment is, and he cites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. 4 is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then in verse 5, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your uh, might. Or in the Hebrew, it's muchness. And he's, but Jesus doesn't stop there. I mean, he's, he's, at this point, he's answered their question. We just want one. Give us the greatest. Jesus goes, but there's a second 
like it. And he also, quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from Leviticus 19.18, he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you notice what's in Jesus' reply there is he's addressing both tables of the law. He's addressing love God, which corresponds to that first table of the law, commandments number one through four. And in his second response, the second being like it, he addresses the second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these, all of the commandments hang. So as we have a... a as we have for us the moral law summarily comprehended. I love that. Just these old writers, I love the way they put these things. We have the moral law summarily comprehended for us here in the Ten Commandments. It's summarily comprehended even further by Jesus in affirming these when he says, love God and love neighbor. Two tables of the law, the moral law, and the two parts of the greatest commandments. And just as a side note, there's a, there's a little bit of confusion that happens today that there's some who, hearing Jesus' words there and his answer to those religious leaders, they see that as the gospel, that Jesus is coming and presenting the gospel. And in some ways, the line of reasoning is, well, we focus on the red letters of Jesus and probably the, the pinnacle of the red letters of Jesus would be what he's saying here in summarizing the gospel. It's all about loving God and loving, loving neighbor. And so the gospel is follow Jesus' teaching to love God and love neighbor. The, and, and as good as that is, the question isn't what is the gospel? The question is, what is the law? And Jesus is answering what the law is. And we'll get to a distinction about the law in the gospel at the end here. But the idea is to not walk away thinking, hearing Jesus' words there, and thinking he's answering the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Just give me the good news. Give me the to-do list that I need to do to be acceptable for, before God. That's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. It is a misunderstanding of the good news, of the gospel. So we have ten commandments, ten words, written on two tables, or two tablets, but it involves two tables of the law, our duty toward God and our duty toward our fellow man. And then thirdly, let me get to, um, and to end this this last point here might be helpful to go with question 47 of our catechism questions. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all thy heart, with all your, our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Ten Commandments, two tables, and now we get to three distinctions that I think are very helpful, especially as we're going to be looking through this, continuing in this series. This is one last bit of important information. A framework that I think is very helpful for us as believers. And that is to make the distinctions 
between the moral law, we saw the moral law, we saw natural law was the moral law written on human hearts, and then we saw the positive law, which were additional commands given by God. Now I want to make a distinction here between the moral law, the ceremonial law or laws, and the civil or judicial laws. So if you have, if you're in your Bible reading plan, you're what are maybe in Genesis now still, or are you in Exodus? Whatever Bible reading plan, you're probably in Genesis or Exodus, you're getting to Leviticus and you know, maybe you bow out at numbers. You know? <laughs> um, but hopefully if you've read enough, you're familiar with uh, enough with say like the book like Leviticus, there's all sorts of sacrifices and ritualistic processes and animals and the different types of animals and the blood that needs to be offered and then the grain that needs to be offered. Those would be an example of like the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. If you got far enough into your reading to where you got to Deuteronomy, you would see a little bit more of what we would call the, the civil laws, laws that would govern the behavior among the people of Israel in those days or judicial laws like court rulings and judgments and things like that. I think this is a very helpful distinction. It's sometimes referred to as the threefold distinction of the law. There's a distinction between the moral law, which is the eternal law of God based in his character of who he is and the obligation that's, um, that's built into human beings being created in his image, the obligation that we have. But then it's almost on top of those things, almost in a positive law kind of way, are ceremonial laws and civil laws that are given for very specific times, for specific per persons, under specific conditions. Now, there, it's helpful to make distinctions between those two. Now, it's not a simple thing as just going through and identifying this verse and this verse. This verse is a moral law verse, and this one's a ceremonial verse, and this one's a civil, because there's a little bit of overlap. And the ceremonial and the civil are extensions of the moral law, but they're different. They're different. The ceremonial laws and the civil laws have a moral foundation, but the ceremonial laws and civil laws can have a, a terminus or a limit or can be abrogated or fulfilled. I think of examples like if circumcision, for instance, or laws given to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant while they were in the land, or the sacrificial system. Reading the book of Hebrews, you realize that's the main argument in Hebrews is, is to write to Jewish Christians and saying, don't go back to Judaism don't go back to following the ceremonial laws because Christ has fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws. Laws pertaining to the tabernacle or the temple or the altar or the high priest and the offerings like the bull. The writer of Hebrews in this sermon, he preaches that Christ has fulfilled every single one of those things. And so they can be limited, terminated, abrogated, or fulfilled. Now the question, when I've brought this up before, the question I often get is, well, wait a second, can you make that distinction? Is that an artificial framework that you're putting upon the scriptures? Or can you, can you 
Show me from the scriptures that that's true. And is that something that just kind of happened in the Reformation? Well, without getting into too much detail, it doesn't come in the Reformation. As a matter of fact, you could find it all the way back to um, church leaders like Aquinas or St. Augustine or even further and earlier than that. But my main uh, point in wanting to try to stress this to today is that you can have justification for that, and I think you do have some justification for it in the scriptures. This could be a series all its own, but let me just give you a couple of reasons why the scriptures do give us justification for having that threefold distinction, okay? Are you tracking? Most of you, okay. Hang with me. Here we go. Here's, the, here's some biblical justification. The first one is, <clears throat> we've seen this already, um, in the fact that there's the ten words. Now, when it talks about the two tablets of stone, and it says that on the two tablets of stone are written the ten words on front and back, and those two tablets were both put into the Ark of the Covenant, and he says those ten words. Now, but if you go back and you look at all of the instructions that Moses has given, you're like, that's a lot of words. How do, how do you, what's the difference between all of the other things that Moses had given instructions to Israel from the Lord? And we looked at this last week with some of the terms. There were rules or judgments or statutes or precepts or testimonies, things like that. So the fact that they number it for us as the 10 is part of it. Moses wrote, wrote all of them down, all of the instructions down, but something unique happens with the 10. And this is really kind of the second piece of evidence that's related to that. They were written on tablets of stone by God himself. Here's a great trivia question about, about Moses. Um, and I, there's some date, debates about this. Have you heard this, whether Moses was left-handed? And that's why Hebrew goes from right to left is because he was left-handed. When he's chiseling out the, uh, the commandments, not heard that joke. Maybe it's a seminary thing. I don't know. <laughs> Here, so the trivia question, uh, what, what specific things did Moses write on the tablets? The answer is none. The answer is none. The answer is, is that God himself did it multiple times in the scriptures, the 10 are set apart in a very unique way from the other things that Moses would have written perhaps on a scroll is that they were written by the finger of God. Here's a couple of uh, verses for us here. Exodus chapter 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Or Exodus 32, verses 15 and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Now, you remember when Moses comes down, Aaron is leading all of Israel into a, a riot of idolatry around the golden calves. And he's upset and he breaks the stone. And then he has to go back up for another 40 days on the mountain. And he gets these uh, tablets again. And so uh, 
<clears throat> which you see in uh, Exodus 34. Here, let me read uh, 31 verses 18. And he gave the, the uh, when he had finished speaking, he gave them on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. But then it's afterward that he says in Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first which you broke. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy 9, Deuteronomy 10, which we read earlier, all say the same thing. So that is, gives us another bit of evidence that maybe of all of these commands that were given to Israel under the Mosaic covenant, that the, that the ten were set apart, that the ten were unique and they were different than the rest. Plus, you could see some other examples, and this is the, the third, maybe third example I could give of, um, and don't interpret this in, in any way as minimizing the civil laws or the ceremonial laws for Israel at that time, but there is a, there is a hierarchy that the Lord himself even suggests. And so let me give uh, an example here. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 when Samuel is saying to Saul these words, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Notice the distinction that's, ha that's, that's implicit right there. A distinction is made between hearing the voice of the Lord, obeying the voice of the Lord, and offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's not minimizing the, the, the latter, but he's saying the latter really doesn't make much a difference if you ignore the former. And if you take the obeying the voice of the Lord and tie this to the, to the moral law, then you could see that there's a distinction, there's an elevation between obeying the commands of God over and against sacrifice. Let me give you another one. There's multiple verses like this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire, it's the Lord <clears throat> saying, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Again, sacrifice here would be not just, you know, this would, sacrifice here would be in reference to the ceremonial laws, the, the, the offering of animals. He says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or Proverbs 21, verse 3, to, uh, to do righteousness and justice, okay, that's, that's moral law language. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable than sacrifice. Now, keep, remember, the Lord has commanded for the sacrifices to be done. But the, the sacrifices are hanging on this moral law. Obeying what the Lord calls us to do. Isaiah chapter 1 is another good passage, but let me just go to, to Jeremiah chapter 6. Another example. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the people of Israel, for breaking their, their covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant with, with the Lord. The fruit of their devices, because why? Because they have not paid attention to my words and as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is 
frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land, your burnt offerings, again, part of the ceremonial law, are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Notice again the juxtaposition between accepting and doing his commands, his law, is preferred over the ceremonial. Okay, Aaron, that's just the Old Testament. Well, let me, give you, let me just give you one example from the New Testament. And if you do have more questions about this, I know this is one that is often uh, kind of a tripping point when you think about the threefold distinctions in the law. Um, I have more I could share with you, but let me give you an example from Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew 23, it's the chapter right after he had just given that the great commandment that, Pe that Pepe read for us. And it's in his woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says this in Matthew uh, 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's very interesting, isn't it, right there, that, that he's criticizing them for tithing out of their spice rack, and yet he's exposing them for a whole bunch of their other problems, the moral problems, just their heart dead set against really truly following what God's moral requirements are. He says, you tithe me with your mint, the, the smallest of little spices. You set aside, you measure it out, maybe you get some little device where you figure out what the tenth is, and you tithe on that, but you ignore what he calls the weightier matters. Friends, I think the moral law is the weightier matters that Jesus is talking about here. And again, don't think that for Israel that he was saying, ah, the sacrificial system, ah, that's, don't worry about it. God's changed his mind. No. He's fulfilled it in Christ with his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. He's not minimizing that in any way. As a matter of fact, he says, and actually, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, but you ought to have followed the weightier matters. So that's the three distinctions, the threefold distinctions. Yes, the Bible does indeed present a case for a differentiation to be made between the moral laws and the other laws like the ceremonial or the civil and judicial, which are positive laws. Ceremonial laws were abrogated by Christ, his fulfillment with, uh, to which they pointed. All of them were pointing to the work of Christ. And the civil laws expire with the state of Israel. But the moral law, as revealed to us in the Ten Commandments, is a summary, summarily comprehends for us what is binding for people today. It existed before Mount Sinai. It continues to be the ethical standard by which people are judged today. And it continues to be the rule of life for Christians today, too, I would argue. So that gets us to the three uses of the law. The three uses of the law. How would we make use of this, the law? And this is in particular to the moral law. How do we use this today? Here, let me give you the three. There's the first use we call um, the evangelical use. And, and I have in the parentheses there the imagery. I think some of this language comes from uh, John Calvin. Uh, one of these, I think, comes from Martin Luther, 
the way that they would describe how the law could be used. And I think the mirror one here is Calvin's. Uh, what we could call the evangelical use of the law. And that is that the, that the law becomes the standard by which people are judged on their conduct. And what it does is, as Calvin's image here, is it reflects not only the holy character of God, but the truly unholy character of our lives. Reflects to us our, our sin in our wrongdoing. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, I think he's speaking uh, to this when the Apostle Paul says, says these words. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. When he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So it becomes this, the ruler, the standard on how well do we live up according to the righteous standards of God. And if you read this, if you read the Ten Commandments and you go, yeah, I'm good. Um, be warned. Be warned right like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus was warned. When the rich young ruler says, what, what must I do to gain eternal life? What does Jesus point him to? So, well, well, you know the commandments. What are they? And the guy lists off many of the commandments. He leaves off one, curiously. But he lists off many of the commandments. And then Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything that you have, rich young ruler, and then come follow me. Then what does he do? He's sad and he walks away. Because Jesus is heightening. He's like, let me tell you what these laws are summarily comprehended here. But... But coveting, I think he's exposing the covetousness in his heart. He thought, no coveting, yeah, I'm pretty good on that. Which Paul goes on to say in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there's your evangelical use. How do you measure up to the Ten Commandments? And woe, woe, to be, woe, woe are we in our society where this becomes uh, taboo to even suggest some things that the law prohibits. But that's the first use. That's the evangelical use. And we're going to get to this in more. The evangelical use is to, to expose people of their sin and their need for the evangel, the gospel. The second use is um, what is termed as the civil use here. So don't confuse this with the civil law, but it's saying there's a civil use. And that is that these laws and the, the uh, general equity of maybe some of even the ceremonial civil laws in Israel serve as kind of a, a curb or to bridle the sins in our society. I don't know of a society on earth, a culture on earth, where let's say, for example, murder is totally acceptable. Present culture and abortion exempted. But generally, across all of society, I think that they, people have implanted in them the knowledge that we should not murder somebody. And that should take the life of an innocent person. 
and that nations and rulers of nations should uh, govern according to these same moral standards. This would be kind of the civil use of law in a way to restrain sin in society. More could be said on that, but let me just get to the last use here that I think is relevant for us, and that is the didactic use or the instructional use. And that is that the law is still useful for believers today to direct us in how to live. Calvin refers to this as the law is still a rule of life. The moral law still then is a rule for life for us, not as a covenant of works. He's like, let's just clear this out right now. Not as a covenant of works for Christians. You are no longer condemned by the law because Christ has been condemned for you. You are no longer held guilty by the law and condemned in the, the great tribunal of the Lord because of the law because Christ has fulfilled that law for you. The curse that you would receive for breaking the law, Christ has received that curse on the tree. But on the other side of that deliverance and redemption, the law then still is useful for us because then it is the standard by which we see how we're doing. We can see where do we need to confess? We see that this is the, the law is what the Holy Spirit that indwells believers manifests in us. That's the fruit that we see is greater and greater obedience in our life and in our heart to, to God's law. But again, the law is not for believers, a covenant of works, but it is still useful for us today. So let me summarize with this, this paragraph here. This comes from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 2. The same law, the moral law, that was first written on the heart of man, natural law, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, written in two tables, the first four containing our duty to God, and the other six, our duty to man. This is what we're going to explore in the rest of our series. How this moral law is represented in the Ten Commandments. Continue to be our guide for our duty. And we'll see, we'll look into the New Testament and the various ways that the New Testament references these 10 commandments in their instructions for believers. And I pray it's going to be fruitful for us as well. But as a reminder, the law is not, does not condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not do the law as a covenant of works whereby we merit the reward as a participant in this covenant with God. No, indeed, on the other hand, the law was fulfilled and works were done on our behalf. Rachel and I were talking before the service. We were talking about our... Um, 
the, this covenant of works, this performing of works, righteous deeds by which we're saved. And we're like, we're, I think she was saying that she grew up hearing that like, well, of course we're not saved by works, we're not saved by works. Um, but then she added this, this comment, but we, we are saved by works, they're just not ours. The righteous works of the law have been fulfilled for us. And they've been fulfilled for us in Christ, in the new covenant. And Jesus gave us a meal to mark that new covenant. So we're going to, together, now we're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to be um, renewed and reminded about the covenant, the new covenant that God has made for us in Christ. Where we take this meal that Jesus gave to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed and he broke these and he says, this is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, and this is my blood of the new covenant. So that whenever we take this, we're proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes. And so let me pray and then we invite you to come to the table, take the elements back to your seat. This is for believers in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this meal is for you. It's a, it's a means of grace for us. In the same way that this, this grain and the fruit of the vine would have nourished the bodies and refreshed the spirits of people in ancient days as staples of their diet, so too we are uh, nourished by the truth of the gospel and we are refreshed with the joy that comes from the salvation in Christ. And so we take this with great joy having confessed our sins before him so if that's true for you that's come. if that is not true for you and you don't know christ you have not professed faith in him feel free to stay at your seat no judgment